Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lees with another episode from season two of the Surf and Sales podcast. Uh, we're super excited to have with us today Amos Schwartzfar. I want to make sure I get that right, who is the managing director over at Techstars and also author of a new book called Levers, which I know we'll dig into in a little bit. But Amos, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Cool. Thank you guys for having me. Looking, I've been looking forward to this chat since uh, since we first started talking about it. Yep. Totally agree. So my first question is, I know you're down in Austin. So how do you and Scott know each other? How did that, uh, did you guys ever meet before? Or We know each other the way everybody knows each other in business, LinkedIn. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, how, that's how deep this friendship goes, Richard. That's about as deep as most of them go. <laughs> although I think, although as we've discovered in the early, you know, the, the pre the pre um, interview, uh, I have a feeling that this is the beginning of a long friendship. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Quite well, we, we we come we we come from you know similar regions in Northern California, yeah. you know, a little bit. So there's some history there. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Salesforce Sales Cloud. Lead four one one and Gong.io for supporting the podcast. Uh, we always appreciate it. And um, obviously, the event is coming up in November as you know COVID restrictions loosen. So we're excited about that. And those the sponsors for that as well. Uh, so Amos, talk to us just like sales. How did you decide to get in sales, revenue, tech, any of those places? Where where did it all begin for you? Oh man. Uh... I, I think if anything, I decided to not get into sales. Um, my, my father was a salesperson and, um, and he used to always say, everything is sales and don't get into sales. And I, I went to college, not so much to go to college and um, left with an English degree in creative writing um, and thought maybe one day if I decided to grow up, I would be a, a teacher and probably a gym teacher sincerely like that was where I was headed and uh, I, I stumbled into startups in the in mid 90s in the Bay Area and um, the second startup that I was the first one was fun and good and had a, had a nice exit but the second one that I that I started at or it was a part of I had met um, the founder of this company hot jobs out at a bar uh, he was sitting by himself I had been doing some work I was with a bunch of friends and we he was by himself I was to come hang up have a beer with us and um, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what Hot Jobs was. And I really didn't know what the internet was at the time. And uh, you you might even know him. Dave Carbajal, name ring a bell? Yes, I know yeah. Dave. Yeah, so, so Dave, if you know Dave, is a very gregarious, very friendly person. And he persuaded me to come and interview for this company because it was going to be the next hottest thing. And this is, you know, before they went public. Oh, yeah. And um, I, remember, I remember very vividly I was like, yeah, I love my job that I was doing. I was working for an ad agency and I was like, I'll go do this interview because I, I, why not? Right. I'll meet some cool people. And I walk in and it was like a scene right out of boiler room. There was like 30 people in the interviews. They were, you know, the, in, they're, you're interviewing like five people really fast. And I went, I'm like, am I allowed to curse on the podcast? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, Please. fuck this guy. Like who the hell is he wasting my time? So I went into each one of the interviews, like totally not caring whether or not anything happened. And um, so I, I left the last one. I went back to my job. And uh, a day later, I get a, an offer letter from Dave. And I was like, that's weird. I'm like, so let me push back on this offer letter and see what I can get. You know, there was like a, whatever it was. And I pushed back and they gave me everything I asked for. 
And I was like, I think I have to say yes now. <laughs> so right. I said, yeah. And, and that was to be a salesperson for hot jobs in, this was in 1999. And um, I was going to say, so I want to pause there. Scott, do you even know what hot jobs was? Oh yeah. I remember. I remember it. Amos's story is very similar to, to mine. He's like going through college, doesn't know what the internet is, probably barely had an email. At, this is exactly my I didn't have an email in college. Yeah. See? We're, we're, Amos and I are like the last people that got through college with no email address. We're of the same ilk here, Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're covering this. That's what I just wanted to make sure because I know it was like last century. God, you were. Yeah, no, I, 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 I remember hot. I remember hot jobs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we really were like the last. Like my sisters are just a couple of years. My wife is just a couple of years younger than me, and she had email all through college. Didn't have an email address in college. Didn't know what it was. Right. It's yeah. it's crazy. So so did you fall in love with it? I mean, you walked into this old old school boiler room thing. Like, yeah, I I don't know that I would say I fell in love with it. What I did fall in love with it was a couple of things. One, I had never been a part of such a a really cool culture. Hot Chops had an awesome culture and an awesome sales culture, um, and I I wasn't very good at first. In fact, there was you basically had a thirty day period where if you didn't make a sale in your first thirty days, you were fired. Oh yeah, we all we Richard and I remember those days. Too. Yeah, Scott had it down to a week. Yeah, well, Scott. at day twenty nine, I didn't hadn't made a sale, and I was like, I guess I'm getting fired. And then that day, I had four sales come in, and then from there, like I shot to yeah. the top. And and I think I think I fell in love with a couple of things. I definitely enjoyed um, finding out how to. I didn't. I at the time, I could not have told you this, right? This is reflecting back. But like, I fell in love with like helping people get value. And I believed what we were, were doing was really helping these companies grow. Um, and I, I did fall in love with that. I definitely fell in love with like the, the satisfaction of closing a deal, although I didn't believe in closing a deal at all costs ever. Um, and, uh, and, and then very quickly, because we, did, we went public through that time period of you know, about four or five months of when I started, um, because I was crushing it myself and these two other guys were asked to move from San Francisco and open up the LA office. So here we, I was the old, uh, I think one of the guys is the same age as me and the other guy was a couple of years younger, but like we're in our late twenties, you know, responsibility of finding and opening up an office in Los Angeles. It was just, it was awesome. In retrospect, I think that, you know, the management of the company was crazy to trust us, but they did. And we, you know, we did a really good job. And it's interesting because um, I was, I was, this was the part of life where I screwed up. Right. So all through the nineties, I sold classified ads in the newspaper, right. All and specifically help wanted, which is what the term was back then. Right. You know, the job stuff. And it never dawned on me to even attempt Scott, you, you'll be like, Oh, standard Richard. Um, so to even think about this hot jobs thing, like I probably looked at it and was like, fuck that. Like, what is this thing? Right. And, uh, so it's, it's interesting to see how that goes. And then for those who don't know, I think you guys eventually got bought by Yahoo, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's right. We got bought by Yahoo in 2002. And I stayed about another little over a year, I basically stayed until I was. So what was it like? What was it like to be part of an acquisition during the first dot com? Right. Like, was it, you know, the stories are always sort of crazy. They're still a little crazy, but I don't, I think they were the parties were much bigger back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I think there was, there was, there was the excitement around the acquisition. There was the expectation of what would happen. And then there was the reality of what actually happened. Um, and then especially in retrospect, but it was. So what were those things? Those, that's really interesting. Cause I think that happens now, right? There's the excitement, the expectations and the reality. Yeah. It was really, really exciting. And especially at the time Yahoo, I mean, Yahoo was it right. The, right. 
bigger than Google. It was like totally reinventing or creating the internet. And we were like, holy shit, we're going to be this massive company. We're going to make so much money. It's going to be fun. We're going to be so important to Yahoo. And we were really important to Yahoo for all of about four months. And then they bought Overture, um, which at the time was, you know, the biggest acquisition. I think it was over a billion dollars and Overture ended up being, you know, their, their ad. Yeah. We got forgotten about pretty quickly after that, which in retrospect, was a good thing for for hot jobs um, because it meant that there weren't eyes on us, there weren't expectations on us in the same way that there were on Overture, and so hot jobs could continue to go do its own thing um, and not have unrealistic expectations about what was possible. And then hot jobs continued to grow. Uh, eventually, um, Dan Finnegan came in, who now for a long time has been the CEO of Jobvite, but came in and ran hot jobs for a while. Um, what? What was your sales process like back then and, and how might it compare to kind of the modern sales process now? Yeah. When you say back then, do you mean like in the early days or post Yahoo or maybe you mean? I'm, I'm talking about even before, like when you just started, like, did you just have a, a notepad and, and pen? Were you using an Outlook calendar with five different colors? Line. What were you using? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was, we, we did have a CRM. The CRM was, um, it was home built. And so there's a little bit more history here, which is Hot Jobs grew out of a recruiting firm called Otech. And Otech uh, was a really, really successful New York Bay Area recruiting firm, executive recruiting firm primarily. Uh, and they had built their own CRM. And when one of the founders of Otech decided to start Hot Jobs, they basically brought it over. And so we shared the CRM, but it was home built. Mm. Uh, I. I, you know, we had, we were supposed to put stuff in there and we did because that way someone else couldn't take your company basically. Cause it was, you know, there was very territorial. Yeah. Um, uh, the reason there, there's, there's the next, uh, his next book, Richard, the reason right. I started using the CRM was to protect my account. That was the primary yeah. reason, because if you didn't have a note in there for 30 days of an activity, someone can just take it. Yeah. And yeah. Do that, right? So yeah. you wanted to do that. It was like walking dead. Like, like that's how you manage your territories. Like you had yeah. a little feet. I remember like, you know, I would have a day of the week where I would go through all of the things where like, I haven't touched them in a while. There's probably nothing here, but I don't want to lose them. And I would just like drop it in the message. Like, right. Left message. I did this too. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. old school. It's old in school. retrospect, I think other people lied, but I never lied about it. Right. Cause things did pop for me from time to time. So Amos, tell everybody now um, what you do. Talk, talk to everybody about, tech stars and and what your role is there we, we yeah, didn't get into that um i so now i'm the managing director of tech stars in austin and it th- th- means what it means is that i run an accelerator in austin texas for tech stars and um there's a there's a couple ways that i'll explain that at, at its core we're venture capitalists we invest in your company and the way that we invest is a little different than how you how I think the world sees your typical venture capitalist because we do invest some capital, but the biggest investment at the accelerator level is um, is our time and our network uh, and the mentorship that we provide to companies to help them get from wherever they are. And you know, I think every managing director, everyone, there's 50 people that do what I do around the world. We'll all describe it a little bit differently, but the way that I think about it is like I get you on a path to repeatability so that you have the ability to, if you choose to raise capital you have a really good um, story. And by story, I don't mean um, uh, uh, theater, I mean math. Like what is the economics of your business? How does, the, how does it actually work? How does it function? So that you can you know, 
go raise some capital if that's what you choose to do or grow a business, however you choose to do that. Yeah. What are, what are those kind of repeatability things that um, you're, you're most kind of focused on when uh, an entrepreneur or a company is kind of just getting started specifically on the sales and kind of revenue side? Yeah. Are you, is this, is this your, your kind way of letting me plug the book? Cause I, that's exactly what I wrote the book about. <laughs> No, I wasn't going to be as I wasn't going to be as obvious, but right. that's okay. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> um, so it, you know, it's I, it's taken a little while to get here, but but when Trevor and I sat down and said, "Hey, we think we should write a book about this," it was exactly it, it, it was to answer your question and to do it at a bigger scale than just tech stars. Yeah, which is there. There's sort of like you know. There's really one fundamental principle that we believe in, which is to be a data and metrics driven, to have a data and metrics driven plan. And we believe there's there's some very important, four very important steps to be able to do that. So number one is how to figure out who your customer is and um, how to know if you're on the, the path to product market fit. And as you guys probably know better than I do, um, People think they have product market fit and will use that, that terminology long, 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 long before they even have have it and long before they even have any real direction. So what is that? So what is what do people think they have? What does that mean when you see it and they think they have product market fit? And then what's the reality of like, well, you know, you've got product market interest. Maybe that's what I don't know how you describe Yeah, it. I usually say product market direction. So I, I think I think a lot of people will use that terminology when either they hear a lot of people saying, yes, this is what I want, or even have a couple of early customers. Um, but I, I don't believe sort of the flip of that. I don't believe someone truly has product market fit until they can define with very specific clarity who the customer is that will say yes 100% of the time and stay on forever, forever, right? Until, until someone else comes along and does it better than them. So how do you, how does that, how long does that take? And, you know, and granted, you know, it depends and stuff like that, but does that. How long that should it take? Yeah. yeah, maybe that's a better question. It definitely question. depends, but I think it takes, I think it takes years, like four, mm. five, six years, you know, and maybe some people get there, you know, luckier and they get there, you know, quicker than that. But your typical business, you know, maybe longer than that, it, you know, people always talk about the, you know, the overnight success usually takes about 10 years. Scott, I want to I want to push back to you on this because you built several companies at that stage, right? You've got them from zero to ten million, zero to twenty-five million, those kinds of places. Where, where one, where do you think you had product market fit, or do you and, and do you agree or disagree that it takes five or six years? Well, I would be interested to know Amos's definition of success versus mine when it comes to comes to a company because maybe maybe his is like much larger scale or something like that because it's it, 10 years or even the four to six years like i never worked someplace longer than three years in one month in my life okay and a couple of them have been quite what i would deem quite successful um including the the, the last place which is doing phenomenal right now but um i it does it does take it does take a ton of time He's dead on right about the his his first kind of marker there. Like you you've got to get this ICP whatnot and and product market fit. To me, I never thought I had product market fit and until I had built a decent pipeline, closed a deal or two myself. As, this is as an early early sales leader now, Richard, and then hired a couple people underneath me, taught them, and they were able to build pipeline and close deals on their own. And then I would say. 
I think I'm on to something here. That was when that was when I knew it wasn't when I could do it myself. It was when other people that I'd brought in with very little experience most of the time were able to replicate some of my early success on their own. And then I thought, OK, I think we're on to something. I, I fully agree with, with, with you on, on that. That's when you you're on to something. Right. And then the question is, can that on to something? Yeah, it's maximum potential, which is relative. Right. Some markets are bigger than others. And I, I'm curious when you. When you say the longest place you, I'm similar, Techstar, separate from Techstars, which I'm now coming on six years, four years and a month was the longest place I'd ever been anywhere. So I'm not that far off from you. Um, when the one that you're at for three years and a month, say, how long did that company exist before they brought you on? And like, I don't mean when they say they started, but when they really started. Yeah. Yeah. Um, their inception date would have been roughly two years before I got there. Is a bit of a rare case where they spent probably like a good year and a half just this is at qualia by the way which you know from from being in austin probably yeah. um they spent a good year and a half like just building the product and doing nothing else and they they had the capital you know around to do that um it's a bit of a unique situation so i guess to, to amos's point richard okay that's that's five years right two call it two years before me three years that i was there that's five, that's five years. There's definite re- repeatability and, and success there. Yeah. And I, and I would bet that they probably, and I could be wrong here, but even before they started building that year and a half or two years that, that you know, of inception, there was talk about, should we incept? Is that a right word? Yeah. Should we do this before, before that? So when I think about the, the, the time horizon, that's what I'm, I'm gotcha. taking all that into account. Yeah. That's, that's and, then, and then, so like, and then you, you said, what's my definition of success? Like, I think my definition of success varies a little bit, but it is when does the business, when is the business at a, at a point of repeatability and could self-sustain itself? It doesn't mean that it will, right? You can still like decide to invest more than you're, yeah. but you theoretically could be a self-sustaining business. To me, that's successful. I don't look at success as the exit. That's successful for the founders, you know, financially. But ultimately, if you're building a business, the build, my opinion is the business you're building is meant to impact somebody else in a positive way. And so when you can do that yeah. at scale and actually self-sustain that to me is success. Well, I want to go back to the, the couple other um, levers, if you will. It's that, yeah. it's that defining that uh, ideal customer, getting product market fit. What, co- what comes next? What are the- Yeah, so that's, to me, that's the first one. There's actually something that, that we talk about at the appendix of the book that, pre- that even precedes that, which is like, what's your vision for the company? But because you can't be metrics driven about a vision, we don't make it as part of the process. But so, so what is your vision? Then the, the step one is like, you know, who do you think your customer is that you're going to achieve your, you know, achieve a vision around? The next thing is, what do you believe your business model is? We call that your revenue formula. And it is not simple, but very simply, like what's, what's the stated math equation that runs your business? And it evolves over time. It will be something different when yeah. you're, you know, three people trying to figure something out and have first customers versus scale. Um, but what do you believe that is? And the reason why we think that's important to define early on is because it allows you to cr- un- deeply understand what you believe the drivers of your business will actually be. So when you have those two things, who you think your customer will be and who, what do you think the drivers to grow your business will be? You've got like lots of things to go do, which is a good lead, lead into the third step in the process, which is how do you know what to do when first, next, and beyond that. And so it's a framework literally that says, how do you prioritize the things that are important? Um, and it ties you know, specifically into the first two steps. And then just to, to jump to the fourth step is, 
okay, you now know what to do now and you think you know what you're going to do next, but how do you know whether what you're doing is successful? And so there's a, we've, we've developed a KPI framework that is specific to this process. So any one of those four things I talked about can all work as standalones, but when you put them together, you package them, you, you actually have a process that works well together. And when you've done that well, and by well, I don't mean correct. I mean, when you've done the work, you have everything you need to build a data-driven financial model. We've, it, we sort of sneakily you know, created a way to you know, get founders who are, think they're not metrics driven or, or maybe think they are, but aren't like how to, how to make them build something without yeah. having actually built it. And then you just got to put the pieces together. You mentioned um, a, a successful exit or you mentioned an exit and how that's successful for, for founders. Yeah. And, and sometimes, sometimes founders and a couple other people only um, one of the things that Richard and I have been pretty passionate about in the last couple of years is um, the disparity in equity and the success as it does not trickle down to many team members. And even beyond that, the, the lack of education and understanding about what stock options are and how to, how to earn them, how to exercise them, how you're going to get taxed on them, what you may realistically earn. This has been driving us nuts. And so we've been trying to shed some light on it. Um, so curious what your thoughts are on, on some of the things like a four-year vesting period and why that still exists when most people don't last four years. And, you know, early employees kind of being sold a bill of goods of, you know, hey, your 500 shares are going to be worth a million bucks, things like this. Can, can you talk to, to some of this stuff? Yeah. Let us know how you think about it, because you're around this all the time at Techstars. Yeah. I, I And kind of similarly, I don't know that I have like a specific way to think about it other than um, two, maybe two things. One is I think there's a very specific uh a decision that a founder should make early on. And I'll talk about what I think that is. And it's, it's not quite binary, but it's a little bit binary. And then the other one is being really honest and transparent, which I think is where a lot of what you're talking about falls apart. Um, and I think it's because not fully, but partially because of the first thing, which is like, what are you trying to do and why? And so like the decision that I push on founders, especially when they're really early and they have, they don't, they don't have an option pool yet, or maybe they've just given options to a couple of key employees is what kind of company do you want to build? Do you want, do you want to build an employee owned company, which, you know, when people say that they think of a co-op, but really if everyone in the company is equity, it's employee owned also in a different definition of it. So is that something you want? And do you want to, to, you know, motivate people by the potential for their options being worth something someday? And, and understand that that means that the expectation is that you are not going to run this company forever, or maybe you are, but you're not going to own this company forever because either the public's going to own it or some other company is going to own it at some point, which is different than, um, you know, and I'm invested in a few companies like this where I'm like the only investor on the cap table because we're tech stars, but they don't have employee option pools, but they do, you know, they're very honest about that. Like you're coming here and you're doing a job. In some instances, they pay their employees really, really well, right? They want them to stay around. They want it to be great, but they own the company and that's what, the, that's what they want to do. And it doesn't mean that they'll never raise capital, by the way. It just means that's a decision that they've made and how they're going to run the company. So I think where it gets mushy is, is, is um, CEOs who think 
like, you know, they actually want to be the only people on the cap table are pretty close to it, but they, they don't operate that way either because they don't realize they can or because they weren't honest with themselves about what their actual in objectives were in the long term. And so now they, they're giving out options and they've got to figure out a way for the perception of these options to be valuable yeah. today or one day. And that's, I think that's where the, the challenge lies and it's all in the perception, right? Like that's a lot of the selling of the dream kind of thing. Yeah. And look, the reality is most people's options will never be worth anything. And even if the company is successful to your point, if I, if I've been in the company even four years, but the company doesn't exit for another six after that, and I haven't purchased my options, they are meaningless to me. Yeah. And it's expensive to, you know, to do something about that. But, you know, when you leave the company, if you don't already, you know, if you're not already. So why do the, so why does some of these measures still exist? Like, so for example, let's say um, I'm at, I'm at company XYZ and I leave, I've got 30 days most of the time to actually exercise options. Yeah. And, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're an AE, that might cost you a couple thousand bucks. If you're a VP of sales and you have a significant chunk, you're talking about maybe a hundred, $150,000, $200,000 that you have to have lying around inside of those 30 days in order to exercise your options or you are fucked and you get nothing, right? Well, so like- yeah, why, Add why, to that, not only, do you, not only do you have to do that, but you're going to have a tax consequence hundred percent also, which yeah. is usually pretty huge. It's significant. Yeah. So, but like knowing that, why does so many companies still stick a 30 day number there? That's an arbitrary number. It doesn't have to be 30 days. You can make it 180 days. Yeah. I, I, so I will, I'll say a few things. I don't agree with the 30 day number. So I'm with you there. Right. And, and I think it, I don't understand why it can't be a lot longer, like theoretically from a company's perspective, like you've put in the time, you've earned this, you should be able to exercise it when you can afford to exercise. I agree with that fundamentally. And I don't, I think there's probably lots of reasons for this and some of them may be outside of things I understand, but I do think fundamentally one of the biggest drivers of that are, are VCs who want to capture that back, right? The VC's job, I look, most VCs, if not yeah. all VCs, and some of them are my very close friends, are super, super greedy. They want every penny that they can get. And so if they can capture that back, great. Yeah. Well, it is, it's one word. It's greed. They want it back. No, they he want, said it. want to be able yeah. to roll it. You know, if they're, you know, you know, if they're replacing one VP of sales with another, they want to roll that over to the new VP of sales because now they get those shares back and that new VP has four years to make this shit happen, right? So it's it's a, it's not even a cat and mouse game, right? It's not even, you know, it, it's straight up manipulation of the yeah. market. Yeah, and I mean, there might there may be some things that I don't understand, which is why like there may be some, you know, corporate tax implications by having options out there that I'm that I'm just not familiar with. But I do think the biggest driver is the, and it probably is, you know, combination of the CEO, even though they don't yeah. realize it, but the, you right. know, like, hey, this person's calling me with me. What do I care? But the truth is, like, just like your early investors, you should care about them because they were with you early on and they did something right. early on. Yeah, and, and we we've talked about the 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 four year vesting arbitrary number as well. There's there's no there's no logical reason. Yeah, I don't I don't have a problem. Yes. Okay, well, let, let me let, you don't have a problem. Let let's let's get in let's get into this a little bit. And now now you can hear my voice start to get a little yeah. louder and I start to speak a little faster. So Amos, let's say that one of your companies that you've invested in hires me 
as the first VP of sales, right? My job, in my mind at least, is over the next two to three years, I'm going to get you to 25 million ARR, depending on what we're selling and the price points and all that. But I'm, I'm going to get you to scale. I'm going to get you to like series B, series C, okay? If I do that in less than four years, are you going to tell me that I don't deserve to have vested all of the options given to me? Should I have gone, should I have gone slower so I could hit the four year vest rather love, than do it in three? I love, I love, I love this. And I, uh, I, I love the way you're framing it up. And I think in your, my guess is you've probably done this, but maybe, maybe not. Uh, yeah. I, I've, I've been, you know where I'm going already. Yeah. Well, where I'm, where I'm going is like it, the, for, if someone is like you, it is a great example where you're like literally parachuting in to do a very specific thing. You're a hired gun, right? When I was still operating, it was the same thing. Like I'd be coming in to do that thing, you know, to do exactly what you're describing. I've never, you know, I, the way that I've gotten around it is a little different than what I'm about to describe. But like, I see no reason to say like four years or the goal we agree upon. Milestone based. Yeah. yeah. I, I think for, for some roles, I think that's, I, I think that could be appropriate. And if one of my companies brought that to me, I think I'd be all, I think that'd be a great idea because you're aligning incentives to your point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting closer, Richard. We just got a uh, self-described VC to agree that this is a good idea. Every other VC we asked, they're like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I think, I think they do. Amos is the first one to answer it, honestly. Well, I think it also speaks to the point that, you know, founders and employees should perhaps pay attention a little closer to who they're taking money from right. and how they, how they feel about things and think about things. Because, you know, if I, if I get Amos's answer versus the answers that we've gotten from other people on the show, Richard, as a night and day, and I can tell you right now who I'd rather go work for. Right. Totally agree. Amos, I want to, we're going to shift to a couple other topics, but I, I want to ask this one for, for people who are coming to you, right. As, as, this incubator world, what are the three biggest mistakes people make when they come to someone like you? Um, when they, to, maybe better. No, question. I can answer it. I, I, I'm trying to think, I, I know exactly what you're asking. I think there's a, it comes in a few different flavors. A lot of it is, is around custom, customer centric things. So one of the biggest mistakes is hiring a salesperson before they're ready for a salesperson. And, and as you know, I think you guys know, there's a difference between a salesperson and someone who goes from zero to one, like Scott, or like you guys are like me, right? Like I think of us as more customer development people. Can we do the sales? Yes, but what we're really doing is trying to figure out is it sellable and how do you do it? And then someone, and then a salesperson is coin operated, right? And they're looking for coin operated people when you don't even know what the message is and who the customer is yet. Um, so that that is one of the biggest mistakes, which, which sort of like parallels with, um, I think that early sales need to be founder led the first couple of customers. Like if it's not the CEO out there doing it, I don't care if you're technical and you've never done it before. Like if you can't do it to have an expectation that someone else is going to work for you and do it is not a fair expectation. Again, there's folks like, like you guys that you can go do that, but it's really few and far between that have that skill set when, when you talk about salespeople. So I think it's number one. Um, number two is thinking they have product market fit long before they have product market fit, right? And thinking that they do and convincing themselves that the things that they believe are true instead of trying to prove the things that they believe to be true. Got it, got it. And maybe the third is also, this is this is a big one that's specific to me, um, which it, or th that I believe, which is uh, 
wanting to raise money on an idea versus on data and, and metrics that prove that there's a direction that we're headed. Can that be done? Yeah, people, I've done it. People, 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 it's a good idea. <laughs> people are still doing it these days. I would, I would, I would be thinking that that would be almost impossible nowadays. You know, it went away. It kind of went away for a little while, unless you were like a really, really seasoned founder. Yeah, unless you're a known entity. People, I, I am blown away. I'd say, like, so COVID has been really interesting on on the on the venture world. Because like the first, we had a demo day a week before the world shut down. All of my company's rounds fell apart. All of them. Wow. Every single one of them fell apart. They had like multiple term sheets just got evaporated because no one knew what was going to happen in the world. Fast forward six months, valuations are fucking crazy high. And I'm, yeah. I am blown away in the last few months, how many founders are coming to me and they're like, oh yeah, I raised a million dollars and I haven't built product yet. And they're first time founders are like, whoa, 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 wow. whoa, whoa. This is like, this is the, to me, that's the sign of the disaster, the impending disaster in the venture world is that yeah. is happening again. Scott, you're the kind of guy, though, I think, and I, but, but I also think you have the experience and the track record that someone would probably write you a check for an idea. But Scott well, is someone that has the track record, right. that it's different. Yeah, that maybe that's, that's different, especially if I attached myself to somebody else with the track record and there was, you know, co-founder kind of situation. <clears throat> in my, yeah, in my I, I was able to let the last company that I started um, right before I joined Techstars, I was able, we were able to raise a couple million bucks uh, on just our reputations. It was three founders, all with like long successful track records. And it's the only failure that I've had. And That's was, super interesting. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what caused it to fail? Well, I mean, retrospect. Without, without going into super into the weeds. Yeah, but, I mean, like, retrospect is like, I've, I've played this back in my mind a lot of times. And uh, one is, we were not metrics driven. We thought we were, but we were metrics aware. And we, number two, we didn't really know who our customer was. And so we were trying to serve lots and lots of customers and acting like we knew. Um, and number three, we were really a B2C company, but we were acting like a B2B company. And it goes kind of like, it's tied to number two. We were, we were splitting our focus in a way that didn't allow us to be experts at anything. So I was doing sales to enterprise, to, to, to media companies, and I was crushing it but we didn't have a product to actually support the end user, which was the consumer. Right. Yeah. You know, but our how, product how was the you, customer. There was nothing there for them. <laughs> how, how would you describe the difference between what you said, which was we were metrics aware, not metrics driven. Um, we, we knew the metrics that would be good lagging indicators that we had done something well. And those are the metrics we tracked we did not look at what the leading indicators of those metrics were um, and, and focus on driving um, or learning that we couldn't drive those things. Yeah. So for example, really like, yeah, like number of users, right? You always hear consumer companies talk about or app companies, number of users. Well, yeah, if you've got 10 million users, you, you're probably like reasonably successful at something, but we didn't know we had users, but we didn't know how we got them. We didn't know how to, we kind of knew what they were doing, but we didn't know how to influence what they were doing. So we weren't all the things that would tell us that we're going to have a successful and healthy cohort. We didn't focus on those things. We would just say, here's what our cohort looks like. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I don't know if you've used that phrase before of metrics driven versus metrics aware. That's the first time I've yeah. ever heard of that. I do. I use it a lot ever since it, I had the epiphany that that we fucked up. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it's really good.
Um, I'm going to go totally out of left field, way, way random. What, what do you think about cryptocurrencies and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I am so uneducated on it and I'm embarrassed a little bit. And also I'm just not, I just haven't spent any time. I did one investment a couple of years ago into a company who's doing really well, who I, who I like a lot. They're called um, Transmute Industries. And at the time they were going to have, you know, an offering and do all this stuff. And even they, they pulled back from it. And I think like that, that was my sort of like, I need to educate myself. And when they pulled back from it, I'm like, no, I don't, this isn't where I'm strong. I'll let other experts do that. And I'll focus on the things that I'm, that I'm. Okay. Somewhat related question. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask this because it's like super controversial right now. Okay. Now you, you got people like the Coinbase CEO and the Basecamp CEO, and they're coming out, opting out, basically telling employees, like, we're not going to talk about politics, social justice, inequality, police violence. And nobody's, nobody's allowed to talk about these things. As somebody who's advising founders and a lot of companies, have you had conversations with folks around this and, and how do you how do you talk to uh, companies and early stage folks about this stuff when they're all really small not like IPO'd publicly traded you know companies different scale perhaps different conversation are, are, are you talking to them about how to think through those things now or no um well, I would say I'll start with like my, my general philosophy. Like, I don't, I don't think we should be censoring conversations, right? Like period. And, you know, maybe, you know, the base camp and the, the Coinbase CEO would say that's not censorship because it's their company and what happens inside of their company, they should be able to control communication. Um, maybe that's true, but like, I think humans are humans and we, we live in a place where, where free speech is, is, is just part of, you know, who we are, whether you like what the other person is saying or not. So um, I come from a perspective of like, you know, say the thing you think and back it up with, you know, with information. Like if you have an opinion, that's fine. If you have an opinion, it's different than mine, that's fine. Like, but, I, but if I ask you why, don't be defensive about it. Cause if I don't understand it, I might want to understand. That's my philosophy. So to answer your question more specifically, I haven't had a lot of people come. I, I, don't, I can't actually think of a single CEO that has come to me and said, how do I manage this? And I don't know if that's because. Does that surprise you that nobody has asked? It surprises me to hear. Um, I, I, I don't know if it surprises me for a few reasons. I think one, like I have a deep relationship with most of the CEOs in my portfolio. And I, like if they were struggling with it, I think that they would. And I think that they're not struggling with it. I think that they, you know, I don't know that this is a universally true statement for my portfolio, but mostly speaking, I think that everyone is a, an open-minded, good person. And I, I say that, like, I can tell you straight up, I know a few CEOs, we do not share the same political views. And we've had really candid conversations about it over a meal and agreed to disagree and still like each other. Um, so I think I, what I'd like to believe is true here is that they know what I'm going to say already, which is, you know, people are entitled to their opinion and it's, it's people's opinions, differing opinions 
when we listen and open our mind to something not being what we expect it to be is where growth comes, right? Because that's how we look, that's how we, that's how I view building companies. As soon as you think something's right, go prove yourself wrong. Be open-minded to everything being not right because that's where growth is going to come from and, and be okay with making mistakes on a regular basis. So I think my, my belief is that they know what I'm going to say already. So if they're going for, to someone for advice for that, it's not me because they know where I'm coming from, but but I haven't, no one's come to me yet, but maybe they will. Yeah, it's super, that's, it's super interesting. I, you know, we could dig into how do you disagree with people and still be friends, um, but that'd be a whole other episode. All they have to do is listen to every episode of this podcast and listen to us fight. And then they would know you can still yeah. disagree and be friends. We don't have different political views. So <laughs> well, we're not exactly perfectly aligned though. No, no, we're not. We were arguing already. Yeah. Uh, so Amos, uh, we got our, our last question for you, which is, you know, what, what can we ask, what can we answer for you? But before you do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to our, our sponsors of Salesforce, SalesCloud, uh, Lead411, and Gong.io, who is literally changing the game of sales uh, on a regular basis. If you don't know about Gong or you're curious about it, please check them out for sure. So Amos, what question can we answer for you? Uh, why do you guys do this? Do what specifically the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what, like there's lots of things. There's, you probably have lots of motivations for doing it and there's lots of things you get out of it. Why did you start and how has that evolved to where you are today? Go for it, Richard. Uh, so it started with the event, which started with Scott and I back in, uh, about four years ago taking our families to Costa Rica and we came up with this idea. Scott really sort of pushed it up. Like, why aren't conferences down here? Like, you know, small, intimate and those kinds of things. And then about a year later, I guess two years later, I, I was thinking of doing a podcast and I always suffer from imposter syndrome. And I'm like, well, I can always attach myself to Scott. And, uh, and I also wanted visibility. I wanted to make sure that this was, you know, a bigger audience. And so I went to Scott and I said, you know, thinking of doing this and, um, you know, I think we're better together than we are apart. And, you know, the, the biggest differentiator for us was um, we wanted to drop Netflix style. We wanted to drop a bunch of episodes all at once. And that, that was the part that I think got Scott the most excited um, was that differentiation. Um, and then we recorded a couple of them that were just the two of us that have done really well on deep topics. And then we were like, all right, let's see if we can find guests. And then it's evolved into now we have sponsors who do it. It ties back to the event, which drives, you know, awareness around both things. Um, we've been able this year, in the last year, we started doing live, you know, what we call bonfire sessions, which are really just fireside chats, but it's our version of it, where we can go deep and get special guests on or our sponsors can come on and we take it live. Like we do a, a live meeting. We don't do a webinar because um, we can take live questions. And so we've been able to build the community around that kind of thing. And and we can just do different topics. We just did one a few weeks ago on the future of sales as female, um, which some women we know who are good friends took over that one. We're doing one in May for Mental Health Awareness Month because that's a really important topic for me. Um, Scott doesn't even know it yet, but we're, we're I'm lining up the rest of the year for him where we're going to do one in July about um, you know forecasting the next half of the year. We're going to do another one about how to plan your SKO. How do you, uh, we're talking about doing another one about uh, at the at the senior level of, um, you know, what does a new VP of sales need to know about going into the board meeting? 
right? That's never done this before, or even a CRO, right? Like, so there's, so we can go deeper on those things. So that's how it evolved. And that's how I see it, Scott. I don't know if, if I answered everything for you or if you, you know, what else you would add? Well, you, you answered it really good. I, I would, I would also just say that um, it serves as lead gen. If we're talking like tactically here, it's lead gen for the event. It's lead gen for, um, for us, Richard's for us. businesses and my businesses and, and so forth. So there's lots of like cross pollination there. The lead gen, the leads go to lots of different areas, yeah. if you will. Um, it's a great way for us to kind of stay networked, expand the network with super smart people, um, you know, strategically placed at the right companies and, and so forth. Um, and it's also a way for us to help, I think, uh, the greater sales and revenue community um, just by providing a platform for information um, and then tying back to some of the networking kind of thing, like people plug, you know, books like you're able to do that you've created. And sometimes people are, uh, you have open jobs and, you know, we get messages and can connect people that way and things like that. So it's, it's all part of this larger, at least for me, like, mentorship at scale kind of um, thought process and an idea that I'm trying to do something with and, and play with at this point in my, in my life. So yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for asking. That's a, that's no one's ever asked it quite like that. So that was a, that was a good one. So thank you. And we got to do our favorite thing, which is talk about ourselves. So, <laughs> <laughs> but Amos, thank you so much, man, for coming on. Um, if people do want to get a hold of you and they want to pitch your idea because they, you know, an idea because they want to get a million bucks from you just on an idea, uh, they find you on LinkedIn. Where do they go? If they want a million dollars from you just for an idea. Don't uh, don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a million dollars to give you for an idea, but uh, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Uh, you can go to LinkedIn and hit me there, or Amos at TechStars, uh, yep. Amos at TechStars.com. And, and where can every where can everybody find the book? Amazon and where else? Yeah, you can really anywhere books are sold. Okay. Yeah. And the book is called one more time for everybody. The book is called Levers: The Framework for Building Repeatability into Your Business. Fantastic! I love it. That's awesome. Thanks, Amos. Man, we really, really appreciate it. Guys, I so enjoyed talking to you. Anytime, whether we're recording or not, would love to do it again. Sounds Thanks, good. Man.